Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> Kia ora everybody. I'm Jordan, host of the Kiwi Birth Tales podcast. It's my hope that you find support and comfort in these stories and I'm really looking forward to bringing you today's episode. Just a reminder before we get started that these are personal experiences and you should always seek medical advice before making any important decisions. I'm not an advocate for any particular model of birth or birth care, and this is simply a platform to share these empowering Kiwi birth tales with you all. This episode of the podcast is proudly brought to you by Elevit. So once again, Elevit have come on board and sponsored this episode, which means I can bring you a lot more content in a week, which is amazing. So thank you again to Elevit. I would love for you to go and show them your support either on Instagram or on their website, which I will pop in the show notes. In today's episode, I chat with Gina, who takes us through her fertility struggles and long IVF processes to have two beautiful children. Uh, she also takes us through her unfortunate miscarriage before having her second baby and what that experience was like after a really long IVF journey initially. Uh, Gina's got some really interesting information in this episode, so I hope that you have some time to sit down or on your walk or wherever you're listening to this podcast and yeah, really pay attention to the information that Gina shares with us because she does a really great job. Gina was 36 when she first fell pregnant with her first child, so that makes her, I guess, a geriatric pregnancy in terms of how they class you in the hospital system so she talks us through that as well as being classed as high risk and what that meant for them in the hospital and where they could birth and everything like that so I obviously appreciate that there's quite a few of you on a similar journey to what Gina and her family have been on so I hope that you can listen to this episode and really take some inspiration from it that although they had a long journey they now have two really beautiful little children and there was definitely light at the end of their tunnel so yeah I hope you enjoy the episode and I'll stop talking now and let's jump into it. Hi Gina, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be telling my story. No worries. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about you and who's in your family? Uh so my name is Gina and I'm 40 and I live in West Auckland with my husband Shane and our two children, Benjamin who is 4 and a half and he was born in London and Charlotte who will be 14 months on Monday and she was born in Auckland. Yeah. Awesome. And what was the journey like to pregnancy for you guys the first time? Um we had a long journey. <laughs> This is the short version. Um we got married in March of 2011 and I'd always had this idea in my head about having a year of just being married um before we thought about having children. And a friend came to visit us in the UK um I think it was about July in the summertime and she said they'd been having trouble getting pregnant and I was like oh like I've got no idea if we'll like I've been on the pill since I was 16 so I've got no idea if it's going to be easy or hard or maybe I should just go off the pill for now and see what happens um and so I did go off the pill and it just it felt like such a huge decision to make 
um, yeah. you know, next month I could be pregnant. It would be amazing. <laughs> um, and so I did that. Um, and then I just didn't get a period for six months. Um, and then I would get one for that would last for a month and then have nothing again and then have something after two weeks. And it was just so erratic. Um, and we went home for a wedding, went back to New Zealand for a wedding in February. And I'd mentioned to my mum, she's a midwife, so I'd mentioned to her about um, that we'd been having, that, that we'd wanted to start trying, but how bad my cycle was. And she said that I should go and get checked out. So when we got back to the UK, I went to the GP and got a referral to the gynae team at our local hospital. Um, and so we, we were seen, it was quite quick to be seen there. It was only, I think it was a couple of weeks and we had an appointment. Um, and I had a lot of blood tests and scans and more appointments. And then eventually I was diagnosed with anovulatory polycystic ovaries. So that's the non-ovulating version of polycystic ovaries. Right. Um, so obviously if you're not ovulating, it makes it very hard to get pregnant. Um, so I was referred back to the GP again, who then referred us for fertility treatment. Um, and in the UK, fertility treatment is based on the council that you live in. Um, so we lived in Camden Council at the time, and we were quite lucky there. They found up to three rounds of IVF and nine rounds of frozen cycles as well. Um, oh, other wow. councils don't fund anything at all, and some fund one or two cycles. So we were quite lucky. Um, but it did mean that we had to go. You have to demonstrate at each stage, each stage that you that you can't get pregnant, that you need the next round. So we got our first appointment there in September of 2012, um, and they were quite upfront with us and said, "You guys are classic textbook IVF candidates, um, but we do need to do all this other stuff first." <laughs> So we did nine cycles of clomiphene, I think you call it clomid here, um, so that's medication to try and regulate your cycle. So some of those cycles were monitored, so I'd have to go each day and have blood tests and scans to see if anything was happening. Um, and across the nine rounds, I didn't ovulate at all. So then, obviously that didn't work, <laughs> so we then um, had to wait for the next round of funding to try the next thing. So then in July of 2013, we got more funding and we started on hormone injections, which is just the hormone that they use in IVF, but you don't do anything else and you have a monitored cycle. So again, I was going back for blood tests and scans around potentially when I could ovulate. Um, and across the six cycles, I did ovulate on one day, uh, on one cycle, um, but we didn't get pregnant. <laughs> So that was kind of like an introductory to what IVF would be like. So we'd yeah. I'd start the injections. Um, I have to try and remember. It was just bef um, before, after I'd my period had started. So I think it was about day four or five I would start. And it would be up to 14 days on average of injections for that. Um, so I that gave me a really great regular cycle, which was quite nice to actually have like a normal 28-day cycle that everyone else has, um, but that was all that it did. Um, and then so by December of that year, we'd finished the six cycles and we were ready to um, apply for IVF. So we so all the we had to apply again for funding for that. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just, 
I was just at that point of feeling like maybe we weren't meant to have a baby. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It was like it was just even just getting to that point. We'd already done yeah. 15 cycles of treatment. It was really tough on us um, as a couple and like, especially me. Like, you know, every month you get a period and it's a reminder that you're not pregnant again. Um, yeah. By the time I did actually get pregnant, I put on over 10 kgs from all the different drugs and stuff that I had to take. So it was like you just constantly have that physical reminder of what's going on. Um, And it was around that time, I I was really lucky actually, I had an amazing boss that I worked for and he um, offered me a new role in the company, which meant that I could... It wasn't as, as stressful as my current role and also meant that I could work from home more as well, which was amazing. Um, so if I was having a really bad day, it, it was really easy to just take a day and work from home and not feel like I had to keep going and keep being in the office and that I was letting people down. So that was really, really good. It was really nice. Yeah, yeah. so we so after we... Um, finished the hormone injections we applied for IVF so we went back onto the waiting list because the clinic that we were going to no longer did IVF so in April of 2014 we got an appointment to for IVF with a new clinic Um, and we were actually really lucky to have got into that clinic because it turned out that they although it was an NHS funded clinic they did all of their retrievals and transfers were done by a private clinic with one of the top fertility specialists in the country. So we were actually ended up being really lucky to go with them. Um, so once, once we got to there, there's a whole bunch more tests that we had to do. Um, they do lots of like checking your cycles and seeing how it works. They like to do a practice transfer. So a transfer is with a catheter. So they need to make sure that they can get the catheter through your cervix. Um, to get the embryo to where it needs to be so they do a practice one of those and so there's like it just felt like every week I was going to the clinic to do something mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then finally once we'd finished all the testing we got in so we're all ready to go um, and I just had to have a smear test done because they like you to have had one within 12 months of starting IVF and so I went off for my smear test and unfortunately I came back with very high levels of abnormal cells. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. we were on holiday at the time and the GP rang me to tell me and I was just, I was shocked. I was like, no, no, it's wrong. It can't be right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just didn't believe her. Um, and then so when we got back, I, it was less than two weeks I had an appointment for a colposcopy to confirm the fact to confirm what they'd found in the smear test and it was correct um, and within I think it was about 10 days later I was in hospital having the cells removed so it was done very quickly it was amazing like I I've, I had health insurance through work and so as soon as I found out I rang to find out about um, going private to get it done quicker but the NHS got it done just as quick as what yeah. I would have done if I'd gone private so it was amazing yeah um, and then we just had to wait again um, they after you've had a colposcopy you have to wait usually for six months before they'll do another test to confirm that everything's clear um, and I but I was just rang them every week (laughs) please 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 can I come in earlier and eventually they agreed that I could come after four months and so in October of 2014 
I went back for another colposcopy and they confirmed that everything was all clear. And so I rang the clinic and they said, that's really great. Um, it's November now. We are full and then it's Christmas. Mm. So basically we're looking at the end of January, early February now before you can get started. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh gosh. So we're like, okay, that's fine. You know, one last Christmas and New Year's and we will just, you know, we'll just enjoy it and then we'll concentrate on this in the new year. Um, and then a week or so later they rang me and just and said, oh, we're just wondering where you are in your cycle. And so I was on, I remember very clearly I was day two. And so they're like, oh, we'll just come in and we'll just do a scan and make sure there's no funny follicles going on or anything happening. And so I went in and that was all fine. And they're like, okay, well, we've, you know, we've had a couple of people who've dropped out. Like, um, you know, people will drop out because they've either got pregnant naturally or something else has happened, which, like us, with the bad smear test. So it, the waiting lists change all the time. Um, and so I went, we went to see them, and they were really happy with how everything was. And so they gave me a prescription for 14 different medications that I was going to mm. need over the process. And off we went. Um, so I um, I had to do a practice transfer again. They, had, they wanted to redo that just to check that the biopsy, the cone biopsy, hadn't damaged anything that would make it hard for them to get the catheter through. Um, and so that was all fine. Um, and then we all of a sudden found ourselves starting IVF when <laughs> we were expecting to be another two or three months away. Um, yeah. So basically for me, what happened for me was that the first thing that happened is they take control of your cycle. So I straight away started taking like basically like a contraception pill um, and then um, got a normal period and then we start taking, doing the hormone injections to force your body to make as many eggs as possible to, so, so to get as many follicles getting the eggs ready to release um, and my I didn't react for ages to the injections and we just kept increasing the hormone amounts like just over and over again they, they come in these little vials and you have to pre you have to mix them yourself so you, there's like a dry a dry thing and you pull out a liquid and put it into the dry and mix it and then draw it up into the injection to give yourself the injection um, and that got to the point where I was doing four of those little vials mm. so it became a, like a quite a timely thing a, like a, yeah. a lengthy process each time doing those injections and you have to do them at the same time each day as well so I always did mine I think I did mine like at 7 30 at night so if I was out for work or out for dinner or something I had to take all that stuff with me and to make sure I was doing it at around the same time each night um, and then, yeah, if it just suddenly, or I had, we'd go in for regular scans every two or three days, um, and then suddenly there was 20 follicles there that were getting ready to release eggs. <laughs> so it would just mm. literally overnight happened. Um, and so then, so we had, like, we had a couple more days of going with that, and then you do another injection 36 hours before the retrieval, which is... Um, one to get the follicles to release the eggs and so we did that and then went for the retrieval on the Monday morning um, I had sedation I'm not sure what they do in New Zealand um, 
So I wasn't, I wasn't actually asleep, but I don't remember anything. Like to me, it felt like I was asleep. Um, and they took the eggs out and um, take them off to the lab, and I went home. And I had uh, eggs Benedict for breakfast um, and smoked salmon for lunch and all the other things that I felt like I wasn't going to be able to eat because hopefully it was going to work. <laughs> um, in the UK, they recommend that as soon as you've had your transfer, you start eating and not drinking alcohol and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. as if you are pregnant. Yeah. Um, so that started the next day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, after the retrieval, I, I felt pretty fine. Um, I had, because um, I think uh, it was on a Monday, and I took, I'd taken a couple of days off work, so I had the next day off work, and then I worked from home the following day, but I was actually felt fine. Um, the only real issue that I had is that I was borderline for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, um, which is when the your ovaries get massively swollen and produce lots and lots of eggs, and it can be quite dangerous. Um, mine was just a physical manif- manifestation of it. So my ovaries were so swollen that they caused massive back pain. Like it was like mm-hmm. I had two like big lumps of hot coal in my back. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I just, I felt like an old lady. I was just, I could hardly walk some of the time. But it went really quickly. Um, and by the day of the transfer, it had gone down enough that they were happy to agree to the transfer. And I also, during this process, got some kind of flu, and they're not sure if the drugs have made it worse or what happened, but it was like I've never had a flu like that. Mm. I was just, I could hardly walk. I was so just exhausted and really spacey all the time and headaches and like almost like fainting, and it it wasn't a great time. I was really, really unhappy, and I was just... Like, this has to work because I just don't think I can go through this again. It just felt so bad yeah. all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, and the so the retrieval went really well. We got 22 eggs um, that they managed to retrieve. And then overnight they fertilised 14. Um, and then each day they would call us and let us know how they were and what stages they were all at and that kind of thing. So we... By the time we got to our five, our day five, um, we ended up with six embryos. So we had two that were really excellent quality, two average, and then two that weren't as good as the others. But because we had six, they were going to freeze them anyway. Yeah. Um, so we went in and had our transfer. And that's done, um, you just have some local anaesthetics, so you're not under sedation or asleep or anything. Um, so it was pretty amazing um, to watch on the screen, you see the catheter come up and then there's a little puff of air and that's your embryo. You can't see the actual embryo, but you just see the little burst of air on the screen Yeah, and that's where it is and then it's there. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a bit surreal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we just went home after that. We, we'd actually booked a car to come and pick us up and take us home because we were in London so we didn't have a car, but we thought we'd treat ourselves. Um, and they never turned up, so we ended up catching the bus home. <laughs> just felt like such the wrong thing to do. <laughs> but we, it was a really bumpy ride home, and I just remember like sitting with my legs crossed and holding my breath the whole way, <laughs> just, yeah. just saying like thinking sticky thoughts, stay in, stay in. <laughs>
that was totally, like, I felt really fine after that. Again, um, it was a Saturday, so we had the weekend, nice quiet weekend at home, and then I worked from home for a couple of days and then went back into work again. Um, for anyone who's not been through IVF, the time from your transfer to when you're allowed to do a test is called the two-week wait, and it is seriously the longest two weeks of your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you just, like, every day I was looking for signs of am I pregnant or am I not yeah. pregnant and you know like is this something that I normally normally happens when I get a period or is it not and you know like you could read google something and one article will tell you that you're pregnant one article that will tell yeah. you that you're not all that kind of thing um and the other thing I didn't realize that I learned in this process is that you if you're not pregnant you won't necessarily get a period in that time um because of the drugs that you you're taking so that I always just thought if I wasn't pregnant my period would just come and that would be it but you do often have to still do a test to find out so we um I I was super determined I was not going to test early um I've read so many I've, I've belonged to quite a few um support groups online and things like that and all these people who would be so excited because they'd done a test and then it was positive and then they'd had a very early miscarriage and if they'd not tested they wouldn't have known that they were pregnant and I I was just so determined that I wasn't going to risk that happening and so I didn't even have a pregnancy test or anything at home (laughs) so so there was no Mm -hmm. chance of it happening so our test date was a Saturday so on the Friday on the way home from work I went and bought a test from the pharmacy and it was was well, one thing that really disappointed me about the whole process is I bought one that didn't have lines on it. <laughs> it came up with the word positive or negative uh, on it, yeah. depending on what the result was. I was like, where are the lines? There's no yeah. lines on my test. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, that night was just the longest night. I didn't sleep at all. I was just waiting and waiting till when I felt like it was going to be an acceptable time to get up mm-hmm. and do the test. Um, so I finally at about five o'clock I gave up and got out of bed and I peed on the stick and I left it in the bathroom and I went back to bed and I think I lay in bed for about half an hour before I finally got up the courage to go back into the bathroom and check and it was positive and I burst into tears <laughs> my husband was like why are you crying this is like the best news ever <laughs> um, and it was just it was it was really surreal like I would yeah. I just couldn't believe you know after all of that time that we finally were actually pregnant it was amazing yeah. um yeah um so on the Monday I rang our GP so, so in the UK you have to go and see the GP first um and then they refer you to the hospital that you want to go to you don't have to go to your local hospital but you do have to go to one in your council area so our local hospital wasn't that great for maternity so we went to um, UCLH or University College of London Hospital which is where we had our IVF um, and we already knew a lot of the staff who worked in IVF like all the radiographers and stuff radiologists and those people they did maternity as well so we knew a lot of the staff there so it felt like the right place for us to go to um, and if you decide to go to a hospital that's not connected directly to your GPs, then you have to go to the hospital for your appointments rather than um, if you go to the hospital that your 
GP is connected to, the midwives come to the GPs and run clinics there. So I went to the hospital for all for my appointments and I was assigned one midwife, so I saw her every time, um, and she was really lovely. She was my mum's a midwife, and she was so excited about like mum coming over and getting to meet her and finding out about being a midwife in New Zealand and all that kind mm. of thing. Um, so she, if we'd we ended up moving um, just before I was six months pregnant, but if we'd stayed at that hospital, she would have. If she was on when we'd gone into a labour and she wasn't busy, she would have been our midwife to deliver us as well. Yeah. Um, and then we would have had somebody else who would have done the postnatal care. And then, yes, yeah, so we ended up moving when I was just um, just under six months pregnant. And so we transferred to another hospital, which was the hospital that was connected to our GP. So we had all of our appointments done at the GPs. They had a team of six midwives from the hospital who were our midwives and I met three of them and the theory was was that when you went into the hospital one of them would hopefully be on and they would deliver yep. you but of course when I went to have Benji mm-hmm. none of them were on <laughs> so mm-hmm. we didn't get any of them. <laughs> so our So quite early on so from about six weeks I started having morning sickness um, and I, it was just all day, just relentless nausea um, without actually throwing up. And I just felt like if I could just throw up, I would feel so much better. Mm-hmm. And I just, it just wouldn't happen. I could just never throw up. Um, and for the first two weeks, I had like horrendous headaches and I was really lightheaded and I couldn't stand up for too long and all that kind of thing as well which was really fun um luckily it happened to coincide with the two-week Christmas break from work so I basically spent the two weeks at home we had theatre tickets to go to a pantomime and we got there and I sat through about half of the first half and then I just couldn't do it anymore. I had to go home and it took us about two hours to do the less than half an hour trip home because I would be on the train for a bit and then I'd have to get off. Yeah. I just couldn't cope with it and then wait for the next train, get back on again, go a few more oh, stops. No. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was really hideous that first two weeks. Um, but after that, it got much better. Um, I still was nauseous a lot of the time um, and that lasted until I was about 22 weeks um, but at least I could mostly get about and do normal life again and go to work and um, I, like the tube was just a killer living in London, being on the tube, going to, on the tube to work every day and I'd often, I'd get off the tube and I'd literally be running to find a rubbish bin because I thought I was going to be sick and nothing happening <laughs> it was just yeah I knew where all of the rubbish bins were anywhere near the tubes on my way home <laughs> standard testing in the UK so sort of like what we would test for here in New Zealand such as gestational diabetes and the 12-week um, testing to check all like just that the baby's all healthy and everything like that is it similar there most I mean it, most pretty much everything's the same in regards to testing it's just how they do it so, for example, the um, gestational diabetes is an injection. You don't have to drink that horrible liquid <laughs> that you do here. <laughs> um, so they just do a blood test, sorry, rather than injection, um, and that and that comes back and you either get a, um, a, a 
yes or no from that and if you're in the yes category you then go and you then drink the liquid and to get a more detailed um, idea of if you do have gestational diabetes or not. Um, we had like, all of the same, so when you first go and see your midwife and they send you all off for all of the first maternity bloods, so all of that stuff was the same. Um, we had the 12-week scan and um, blood tests and everything for um, the uh, Down syndrome and the nuchal fold and all that kind of thing was all the same. Um, we had quite high odds of having a baby with a chromosomal abnormality because of my age. I was 36 at the time, so I had instantly, in a few months, become a geriatric mother. <laughs> um, so because of my age and IVF, um, we ended up with a 1 in 100 chance of having a baby with Down syndrome. And that it was just so weird. Like I had a few friends at the time who were having babies and they were getting like one in 20,000 chances. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it was like, oh my gosh. So um, the hospital we were at was a teaching hospital and they were actually doing a study of the accuracy of the blood test. Um, it's the NIPT test that you can pay for here. Oh, yeah. So yeah. It, it's a version of that. Um, and so we got offered that um to do as part of the study so we did that blood test and it came back with it was like a 99.7 percent chance that the baby didn't have down syndrome um and it was yeah it was a really hard time that that was about five days for the results to come through and it was yeah it was because you don't really think about those things when you're struggling to have a baby and then you finally you get pregnant and it's amazing and you just think everything's going to be perfect um, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, hang on a sec, like we've got just as much chance as everyone else of not having a, a I, mean, I don't want to say that a Down syndrome baby is not perfect because they're beautiful children. But it was just for us living in the UK without any family or anything, it was yeah. just kind of like this, oh my God, what are we doing? Like if we have a baby who needs extra support and additional needs we are not going to be able to cope with that here and maybe we should think about moving back to New Zealand and like it was just this five yeah. days of like ah what are we doing <laughs> yeah um and then yeah and then and then we got the result back and it was like it took me a while to kind of get over that again like yeah. it was yeah it was a, it's a weird thing to describe but yeah and yeah and then so I also had the 20 week scan and then um over there, they do one at 32, it's either 32 or 34 weeks, depending on which hospital you go to. So they've um, started doing the additional scan. I think they're doing them more here now as well, but they've found that it, um, that extra scan decreases hugely your chances of having a late, the baby dying late term because um, they find have a lot higher chance of finding out if anything's been going wrong. Um, and then I had lots of extra scans on top of that because of the IVF and being yeah. an older mum and stuff. So I and um, also because of the cone biopsy as well from from the bad cells being removed. Um, so from 16 weeks to 24 weeks, I had a scan every two weeks um, to measure my cervix. Um, and that's not a scan that they necessarily get to see the baby. So I'd always, every time I went in, I'd always be like, oh, can we just have a sneak peek of the baby yeah. and see what's going on in there? So sometimes they would let you and sometimes they wouldn't. <laughs> um, so I had those and then I had, I think I had 
more scans at 32 and 34 weeks and then nothing after that. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the 16 to 24 week scans, I also had a blood test, which combined with the scans gave you a, a chance, your percentage chance of going into labor early. So I had quite a high chance of having the baby after 36 weeks. So it wasn't something really that they were worried about. And yeah. So we were discharged from the obstetrics team um, and then we were allowed to be treated like anyone else, um, apart from the fact that we were IVF, so we still had an induction date booked. So in the UK, they like to induce you on your due date. Um, and when it got close to that time, I, um, I negotiated with them because I had a really normal pregnancy and everything was totally fine and I didn't understand why I needed to have an induction when yep. I, everything was normal. So they agreed to four more days. So from I think from about seven months, I knew that I was going to have an induction on 40 plus four and yep. I was probably going to have a baby then. So it was like from then, all of my thinking about my pregnancy was focused on that induction and nothing else. Yes. <laughs> have much of sort of a birth plan or thoughts on how you wanted to birth do you have many options when you're supposed to be being induced in the UK because my mum was a midwife and as a as a child or teenager I always remember her coming home and saying oh my goodness my patients have this birth plan they want xyz it's just crazy they've got no idea <laughs> so I was always like when I have a baby my birth plan is you know, yes, I want things to be more towards the natural route. I want to feel like I'm in control. I want to it to be calm and peaceful. I don't want too many people in the room, things like that. But I didn't really have any set ideas about, you know, I, if I got to the point where I felt like I needed it, I wanted to ask for an epidural and I didn't want to feel bad about that. Yeah. And if we needed to have a section we had to have a section because someone, you know, they wouldn't say to me, you need a section for no reason. Yeah. So I was always, I always was kind of, I had ideas in my head, like I definitely wanted the baby to be delivered onto me. And if my husband wanted to, he could cut the cord and my mum was going to be there with us. So if he didn't want to, then she would do it. And that was kind of the extent of what I wanted. <laughs> like I, everything else, I was just happy to, see how I felt and see what happened on the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, the, in the UK, they're quite big on, like, even a C-section, you know, there's lots of, you have lots of choices on how that goes and really big on encouraging people to be more vocal about what they want. And, yeah. you know, like, if you're having a section and there's a particular song you want playing when your baby's born, tell them you know that kind of thing so yeah um it's that it's it's really it's you know like they're much more about empowering women to to have that experience that they want to have and really supporting people that like even though you don't have your own midwife who knows you who's been with you the whole time you you still should feel confident to be able to say what you want yeah amazing yeah, that's really cool. And do you want to take us through um, your labour and birth? So did it end up starting spontaneously or were you induced and then into that story? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I'd had a induction date booked for quite a long time. Um, and then on my due date, I woke up, and woke up in the morning and I just felt different and a bit funny. And I've, 
I can't even really describe it, but it just there was just something that said to me that something was going to happen. Um, so I told my husband he was getting ready to go to work, and he offered to stay home. And I was like, "Well, there's nothing actually happening at the moment." And he was um, freelancing at the time, so he wouldn't get any parental paid parental leave. So I was like, "Just go to work because it's another day's worth of work <laughs> that you're going to get." Yeah. <laughs> um, and Mum was at home with me, so. I, like I, it wasn't like I was going to be by myself. Um, and shortly after he left, I, I had the first contraction. And a friend of mine at work had said to me that it was like a really bad period pain, and that's what it felt like. And then after it was like 15 or 20 minutes, there was another one. And then another 15, 20 minutes, there was another one. Um, and it was, and I was just, I was really excited. <laughs> I was like, this is like totally what I wasn't expecting at all. Um, and I'd in the, in our hospital, they have a really nice midwife suite that you can go to if you're having a normal birth and it's big, massive rooms and big double beds and pools. If you want to have a water birth and like Swiss balls and these rope things that hang from the ceilings and like all this amazing stuff to help you have a really nice birth. So I I was just really excited. I was like, you know, this is amazing. I'm not going to have to get induced. I am going to get to go to the hospital and just do what I want to do, and it's going to be great. <laughs> um, and we just, yeah, we just hung out at home, and I packed my hospital bag because I hadn't done that yet. <laughs> um, we did some baking and um, cooked some food for to take to the hospital. Um, and got no idea what hospital food's like because I didn't even end up eating anything apart from toast in the hospital, but mum was adamant that it couldn't be, it was going to be bad. She's like, it's hospital food, mm -hmm. it will be bad. <laughs> so we cooked dinner for her and Jane to have in the hospital. Um, and one of the midwives from our the GPs was due to come round at 12 to do a sweep. Um, and so she turned up and I told her, said, oh, look, I've been having a few contractions. And she said, oh, you know, you're a first-time mum and it's very early, so don't be shocked if I tell you that you're one centimetre because there won't be much going on. Um, and so she did an, um, an internal and found that I was actually three centimetres already. Um, and she broke my waters at that time um, and everything came rushing out. And I hadn't had a show or anything, so there was blood and mucus and stuff. Mm -hmm. And she got a bit panicky and she rang for an ambulance because <laughs> she... I was like, oh no, there's blood in the waters. Uh, and so I was like, I've got to this point now, and now it's all going to go wrong. <laughs> and I was really a little bit stressed by the whole situation. Yeah. And luckily I had my mum there, and she was like, no, no, it's fine. There's nothing wrong. It's just your mucus plug and the waters coming out together. Don't panic. No stress. And the midwife was like, no, no, we have to have an ambulance. So the ambulance came. So they sent a car, first of all, which obviously... Uh, they can't take someone who's in labour in a car to the hospital. So we had one ambulance guy there with his car and then we waited for a proper ambulance to, came, to come and he turned up and there was two more ambulance guys with the ambulance in my house um, and they had a chat to my mum and to the midwife and they realised that actually that we weren't in any hurry and I was fine managing at home so they were sat down and had a cup of tea and ate some flapjack that we'd just made and, and hung out. Um, so I, we had, our flat had like a, a circle, it was 
built around an internal hallway so you could do some good loops. So basically I walked around and around and around um, with three ambulance men, my mum and the midwife, all timing my contractions. (laughs) Um, And finally about three o'clock they decided it was time to go to the hospital. Um, So off we all went with everybody. No sirens unfortunately because I was not considered a risk anymore so that was very sad. Um, but I have to say, being strapped to the stretcher in the ambulance yeah. was probably the most painful part of the whole labour. Yeah. It was hideous, <laughs> uh, especially because I had been walking the whole time yeah. for pain relief and I'd, that had been working really well for me. And then being told that I had to lie down on a stretcher in the back of an ambulance was horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so we rang Shane and he met us at the hospital um, so we got there and got into our room about four o'clock um, and it was really busy in the hospital so we ended up with an agency, agency midwife and um, her mum was not impressed with at all so she ended up doing most of my care at this point because the agency midwife just sat in the corner and mm. wasn't hugely interested in us. Um, luckily she finished at about seven so we ended up getting one of the senior hospital midwives who mum wasn't still wasn't impressed with but thought she was better <laughs> um, um yeah and it, it was it was really disappointing because we'd come in an ambulance even though there was no issue and the obstetricians came and they chatted about the blood and everyone was like no no it's all fine normal pregnant normal birth no issues I still had to go into the labor wards rather than going to the midwife suite um so I was there with being monitored, like they strap the things on your belly to monitor your contractions and the heartbeat and stuff. And they kept coming in and telling me I should hop up onto the bed because the buttons keep falling off. And I was like, no, no, I want to walk around and I keep walking. <laughs> and then um, it was just like, I remember the contractions were just starting to get really intense. And I was just getting to that point where I was like, I'm, I'm going to have to ask for an epidural because I just can't keep doing this because it, it's just too much um and the monitor had properly fallen off the baby's heartbeat and so the room all of a sudden just flooded with like 10 Mm -hmm. people panic stations um and so they decided that they would put a tracker onto the baby's head which is a little hook that they hook in and it just hits sits on the on the top of the skull um to monitor the heartbeat from there um, and so that was around seven o'clock. And when they were doing that, they discovered that actually I was ten centimeters. Oh, wow! So I was ready to go to the next stage, and that was why everything was just getting too much for me. Yeah. Um, I had a little. I did use a little bit of gas, um, but I just found it made me feel really sick um, and drunk, basically, yeah. and not in control and not a good way. So I didn't. I didn't really use it very much. Um, and then actually when I started pushing, it wasn't helpful at all. Yeah. Um, it was kind of more of in the way rather than being of any use to me. Um, and so, yeah, so we, I so I started trying to push on the contractions, but I didn't really get any urge, a real urge to push. And it was like, it just felt, it didn't, like I was trying to listen to my body and trying to feel what I needed to do. And I just, it just wasn't working. And then the contractions started dying away and 
getting further and further apart and less and less strong. Um, and so they decided to give me some Sintocin. Um, and mum also asked them to give me fluids because she said that I was dehydrated and that was mm -hmm. um, affecting the contractions. And they, mum had an argument with the obstetrician <laughs> about that. But eventually they came back with a bag of fluids with the Sintocin. <laughs> Not that they admitted that mum might have been right, but yeah. they did do what she suggested. Um, and so the contractions started coming back quite quickly after that um, and quite strong. But I, I just never really had that urge to push. So I was just going for it basically, like on every on the contractions, just doing as much as I could. Um, and the baby was he was just sitting right there, like they could see his head coming down, and I just I was just pushing as hard as I could, and he'd go come down and then just go up a little bit, and then come down a bit more, and then go up a little bit more, and the obstetricians kept coming back in and saying, "Oh, we're going to have to intervene. It's been too long." I ended up pushing for over three hours, um, and normally in the labour wards they don't allow you to push for over an hour. Yeah. Um, but because my mum was there, I felt, you know, she said it was fine, and I so I felt confident to say no. I want to keep trying. I want yeah. to keep trying. And then, um, and mum was like, the head's just there. We can see the head. The head is coming. Like, just give her a chance. And so we just we kept going and. During this time, there were two emergency sections, so all the obstetricians were busy anyway. So I was left alone to keep going. Um, and then at 10 o'clock, they came in and they were like, right, you've got 15 minutes. If the baby's not out in 15 minutes, we are coming to intervene. And he was born at 10.17. <laughs> and I was like, I just, I just, it was such a weird thing. I was like, I was just really scared. Like, I just... I had to get him out. Like I, I just felt like if I couldn't do it myself, that something was going to go wrong. Yeah. So I, I just had to do it, yeah. and I just like I went into this into a zone and was just like just so focused on getting him out. And Mum said afterwards that they were telling me to slow down that I was pushing to he was coming out mm. too quickly, and I don't remember that at all. Or I was just so focused on just pushing and getting him out. Um, and so I did have a little tear. <laughs> um, it wasn't a, ma a like a massive one, but it did require some stitches. That wasn't too bad, but it was quite painful. <laughs> um, it was kind of a weird, um, a weird sensation. Anyway, yes. Um, so when he kept, as he was coming out, the midwife had um, Shane press the emergency button um, as she saw meconium. Um, so he, when he, he was born, he was rushed over to the little setup that they have for the baby, the, the warm mat and stuff, and basically everyone came into the room and they all went with him and I was just lying there on the bed by mm. myself having just had a baby with no baby, no husband, my mum was gone, all the staff were at the baby, like just like, oh my God, what's happened? Like, is he okay? Have we had a boy? Have we had a girl? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, just lying there waiting mm -hmm. to find out and eventually someone, I think it was my mum actually came over and was like, don't worry, he's fine. They've just, they're overreacted. He's like, the meconium came out after him not before so he hasn't swallowed anything he's totally fine just don't worry so it's like oh I have a boy <laughs> um and the, we didn't find out what we were having but the whole way through my pregnancy I just had this feeling that I was having a boy and I would always talk 
to him as if he was a boy and I would talk about him as if he was a boy and people were always like, have you found out what you're having? Like, no, no. <laughs> and I just know I'm having a boy yeah. and he was. And I, yeah, like I just couldn't imagine him not being a boy and he was. <laughs> um, so eventually they brought him back to me and we had skin on skin and we tried to feed him a few times. Um, he just, like the first 24 hours after he was born, he slept a lot and he was not really interested in food. Um, but we just, we kept trying and he just lay on me and just was really quiet and peaceful and it was just so nice and it was just that instant I'm totally and utterly in love that I will just do anything for this creature. It was just that instant connection with him. Um, so, yeah, so we had skin on skin and he had some with Shane. Um, we delivered the placenta. Um, I had the injection. I don't, to be honest, I don't even remember having the injection, but looking back on my notes, I did. <laughs> um, they did the stitches. Um, we, we tried to feed a few more times. Um, it was getting quite late, so I think mum went home like, around midnight. Um, when the placenta was delivered, they found that it was um, really severely deteriorated, so parts of it were black, um, and it wasn't providing a lot of nutrition to Benji. So he most likely lost a bit of weight before he came out. Um, he was all really wrinkly, and like the, like the fat had come out of yeah. his body. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. took a while to kind of fill him back in again <laughs> to where you'd imagine that he should be. Yeah. So he'd, when we'd had our last scan, at, oh, I think it was like 34 weeks or 36 weeks, he was predicted to weigh to be around nine pounds, which is the same size as um, his other cotton, his uh, other nephews on my husband's side of the family. Um, and he came out seven pounds three. So it was quite a shock to see how much smaller he was. Um, also they forgot to do the cord bloods and things when he was born so Shane had to take him over to NICU so I was in the room all by myself for about an hour um, so I just went and had a shower and things and was just there waiting for them to come back um, and Shane was just sending me little photos and videos and things of Benji in the cot waiting for the blood test just so that I wasn't so I could still see him and so I wasn't by myself. Um, and then finally at about four in the morning, we went down to the wards, um, and the ward was a big giant room with curtains that were divided into six little rooms. So there were six mums, six babies, six dads in this one room. <laughs> so you can imagine there wasn't a lot of sleep going on yeah. in that situation. Yeah. Um, they have, they do have some private rooms, but they are for people who have um, sections or multiples or other complications. Yeah. So we were just chucked in with everybody else. We woke up at about seven and tried to feed him again. Um, and again, we just couldn't get him to, just wasn't interested. Um, and the midwife came and gave us a hand and we got him on for a little bit. Um, and then from that point on, I was determined I was going home mm. and I was not staying any minutes more than I had to. <laughs> so I was like, right, what do we have to do to go home? And Benji and I both had to go for a wee. He had to poo, and I had to show them that we could breastfeed. And so we, as soon, my mum um, came in at 12, and as soon as she came in, she just got him straight on the breast, like, instantly. 
Um, and she filmed it with her phone, and Shane ran off to find the midwife so that they could come and see that I was breastfeeding. <laughs> and so they 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 were still reluctant, even though they knew that we were going home with my mum, who was a midwife, um, and we'd done all of the things they needed us to do. They would have preferred that we stayed another night, yeah. but I was, there's no way I was staying. So like, no, we're leaving. <laughs> yeah. So we had to wait. They We had to wait for all of the paperwork and stuff to be done, um, and then we didn't know this at the time, but it turns out that you have to get a permission slip to leave with your baby. So when we tried to leave, um, we set off the alarms because <laughs> we didn't have our permission slip. So we then had to wait for the midwives to come and, and confirm that actually we were allowed to leave the hospital and it was our baby. <laughs> And then because we lived in London, we didn't own a car, so we had borrowed a car seat off a friend, and so we'd rang a taxi to come and pick us up from the hospital to take us home. Luckily, this taxi actually turned up, um, but none of us knew how to put the car seat in the car. So the taxi driver ended up, luckily, he was like, he was like a father of like six kids or something, and he put the car seat in the car, and off we went home. <laughs> Oh, amazing. It sounds like you're so lucky to have your mum there throughout all of that. It sounds like we could all use um, your mum in the room. Yeah, well, I, I mean, there's a lot of statistics that show um, that women who have a, um older like family member or mother or someone with them do better in giving birth, like even someone who's not a midwife. Yeah. Um, and the thing for me with having mum there is that I knew that she would never let anything happen to us. So. Yeah. Like even though she didn't, she wasn't officially wasn't allowed to have a voice or to interfere or say anything. She would never let anything happen to us. So she would stand up if she thought that we needed to, yeah. and also giving me the confidence to say no and to actually tell them what I wanted rather than, you know, you could imagine being there and the specialist comes in the room and says, right, you have to have forceps or we're going to get ready for a section. And you're like, oh, oh my gosh, oh, I have to do this because yeah. you're telling me I have to do it. Um, whereas having mum there meant that I didn't, I never felt like that. I didn't have to agree with what they said. Yeah. And also because I knew that if mum said I needed to have a section, I needed a section. Awesome. And do you want to take us through how you felt when you finally got to go home with your newborn baby? How did you sort of adjust to life as a mum and, and what was that experience like for you? Um, oh, the, I mean, the whole thing of taking your baby home for the first time is just so surreal because all of a sudden you're responsible for a whole other human and they don't come with an instruction booklet or anything. So you just get home and you're like, oh, what do we do now? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so I, and I was really lucky because I had my mum staying with us. Um, so they stayed for 10 days and then they went to Europe for a week. And I had a friend who was moving back to New Zealand from Spain. She came and stayed with us for that week. And then mum and Jeff were back again for another 10 days or so. So I had about the first four weeks I had, I always had someone with me, which was amazing um, because my husband, he was a freelancer. So he only had just the first week off um, when Benji was born. So it was really yeah. nice to have that support and someone to do the washing and cook you dinner. And, you know, I could just really focus on myself and Benji and the recovery from, you know, from having him and all that kind of thing. Um, it was, yeah, I, um, my uncle passed away the day before Benji was born. So we had the funeral for him in New Zealand, um, was 
uh, day three or four when that you have when you're really emotional. So I watched it live streaming and basically just sat on the couch and just bawled my eyes out for the whole day. <laughs> but I think I don't. I mean, I, I presume if I hadn't have been watching my uncle's funeral, that it might have been a bit different. But it, it was really tough that day. <laughs> um, yeah. But then after that, it was yeah, it was much easier. Um, yeah, we and took a bit of time to get settled into breastfeeding with Benji. He was not really hugely interested in food. Um, he's still not hugely interested in food as a four and a half year old, so nothing much <laughs> has changed. Um, we, yeah, he just like I couldn't get him to latch properly, and it was really uncomfortable. And he would just not want to feed, and then we'd go through. Like when he was three months, he just didn't feed for a week and things like that. So it was a bit, I struggled a bit to really get into it properly with him. Um, and then, yeah, it was probably when he was about four months that I finally felt like we were, it was working for us together. Um, and some days I'd go out and I'd be at a cafe with friends and he'd want feeding and we'd be there for an hour and I'd be sat there by myself waiting for him to finish um and then other days he just wouldn't be interested at all so it was I found that quite hard um yeah and yeah the the thing with living in London is a lot of our friends didn't have children um it wasn't like we were young I mean I was 36 when he was born um but people tend to live there for the lifestyle not for a family life so you know all of our friends were still off traveling and going to the pub every Sunday for lunch and mm -hmm. all that kind of thing so we really had to make new friends so we we're really lucky with our NCT group um that we they were such good friends for us and such a huge source of support for me the first three months I, I saw at least one of them pretty much every day of the, you know Monday to Friday because um, the other thing about working in London, living in London is like Shane would go to work in the morning most days before we'd even got up and he'd get home after Benji was already asleep in bed. So yeah. Monday to Friday, he didn't really see him at all. So it was yeah, like you're by yourself. So it was really yeah. nice to have that really good support around me to just go and spend time with friends. And, you know, I, it was quite nice, actually, because I didn't have to think about rushing home to get dinner ready or you know anything like that mm. um so it was yeah it was I was really grateful for that support um and then yeah once we got he got a bit older and we got a bit more settled with everything um I actually really loved living in London with a baby um there's so much stuff to do there there's like activities morning and afternoons lunch times um Benji dropped his naps really early so he dropped down to one nap before he was 10 months old and so all of his friends were still doing at least two naps so we were totally out of schedule with everybody else <laughs> so I very quickly found some new friends who had babies who were just a couple of months older and off we went we had new friends and people to hang out with and you know if I was having a bad day there was two or three cafes that had um baby soft play areas set up so I would just go to one of those cafes and there'd always be someone there to talk to and like you just I never got to that point of feeling like I was alone or that I did, couldn't talk to anyone like it, it was just really yeah. nice um and then of course being in London like the facilities that you have available all the museums um Benji loved the aquarium and we love the science museum as well the science museum had loads of cool stuff 
for quite young children as well for them to interact with. So there was just so much stuff every day to get out and do. Um, like it was almost to the point of like, hang on a sec, I just need to chill out and not do so much, <laughs> you know, just actually have an afternoon at home not doing anything. Um, so I think, yeah, like I, it was almost like we were doing too much and we had to kind of rein in a little bit because there was just so much to do all the time. Um, I think the hardest thing about living in London is the taking a baby on the tubes because a lot of the tubes and train stations are not step-free, so you're constantly carrying the prams up and down the stairs or asking someone to help you, or we use the baby carrier a lot. Um, and also the buses, you can only put two prams or one wheelchair on a bus and the wheelchairs always took priority. So we were constantly getting chucked off the bus because there was a wheelchair that wanted to go on. <laughs> um, but I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're small things compared to the, all the fun stuff that we got to do. Um, and the other issue I had with Benji is that he only ever slept for 30 minutes at a time during the day and like literally to the minute of 30 minutes. And so I, the only time I could get him to sleep longer was in the pram. So I spent a lot of time walking and we just walked for miles and miles and miles and he would just sleep. And I, it was like, I really enjoyed that time. So it felt like it was time for myself, but also I wasn't at home staring at a pile of washing that needed folding or, you know, that kind of thing where you, you just kind of get overwhelmed by all of that stuff. <laughs> Um, the midwives from the GPs came to see us a lot. Um, they came every second or third day. So they were there every day for the first few days and then every second or third day until he was three weeks. Um, and then he had, Benji had really gunky eyes and they it just wouldn't clear up. And they actually just instantly cleared up as soon as his tear ducts started working. So... Just a tip to anyone, if your baby has gunky eyes, sometimes it's just because the ducts yeah. are blocked and then as soon as they, because they don't cry when they're first born, they don't cry tears, as soon as they start crying, like literally overnight it went. Um, so we ended up seeing the midwives till he was about six weeks old um, and then from then on we went to the health visitor at the GPs um, and they ran two sessions, I think it was like a Tuesday and a Thursday morning um, for like two or three hours and you could just drop in at any time and see them and they would weigh the baby and you could chat about whatever you needed to chat about with them and that kind of thing so kind of like yeah. plunk it except for that they're just so much more accessible they're you know you choose yeah, to right. see them because you want to see them um, and yeah it was just really great living in London having a baby um it wasn't really something that I expected to enjoy as much as what I did. Um, there were so many activities and things, like all the museums, and we loved going to the aquarium, um, and the science museum had specific sensory and play areas just for babies. Um, there was things you could go and do, like a music class in the National Gallery, and like, there was just so many different amazing things that you could do in London with a baby. Um, the biggest issue we had with that was that the tubes and the trains, a lot of them, the stations were not step free. So if you were taking a pram, you're just constantly carting the pram mm. up and down the stairs or 
of hoping that someone would stop and help you because it didn't happen very often. <laughs> um, and then if you did go on a bus, the buses could only take two prams or a wheelchair. So if someone came with a wheelchair, you'd always have to get off the bus. So I remember there was one day I was going with two friends into town and we decided to catch the bus. So straight away, only two of us could go on the bus at one time. And then so we'd get on the bus and then a wheelchair would get on. So we'd get off and then the friend, the other friend would come on the next bus. And then so one of us would get on and then we'd go along a little bit further. <laughs> and so some days it took you a while to get anywhere. <laughs> um, and I, I did use, I carried Benji a lot um, with the baby carrier, um, especially yeah. if I was going to a friend's house and I knew I could put him down somewhere for a nap. Um, so that was amazing um, being able to do that all the time. Um, yeah. and yeah, Benji was a 30 minute sleeper when he was a baby from probably when he was from about six weeks old, his naps were only ever 30 minutes. So we're on this constant 30 minute nap, feed, play, change nappy, back to sleep again. Like it was, I just felt like some days we did that eight or 10 times a day to get through mm -hmm. the day, just that constant cycle. Um, and the only time I could get him to sleep for longer was if I took him out for a walk in the pram. So I walked a lot that first year with the pram um, where we lived. There was lots of hills. So up and down the hills constantly um, just, yeah, getting him a little bit more sleep and giving me a little bit of time, not having to think about that yeah. quick little cycle and 30 minute naps. <laughs> yeah. And what did you find your sort of physical recovery was like from your birth? Not too bad. Um, I remember having a couple of days after I had Benji having really sore muscles, like just, you know, like if you go to the gym and you haven't been for ages and you yeah. work muscles that you didn't know existed, it felt like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was just from, like mum said, it was just because of how long I'd had to push for. Um, so it took a while to recover from that. Um, and I, I had some stitches. Um, so if it, I, yeah, I didn't have any issues at all with the stitches. Um, and like, I know a lot of people are really nervous about if that happens. Um, but it was actually, it was fine. I and mean, it wasn't pleasant having them stitched up. Um, but the actual recovery like afterwards was totally fine and they just dissolved and went away by themselves and it wasn't yeah. an issue at all. It wasn't really something I thought about. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really, I think because I, I had mum there, I just did a lot of um, sitting on the couch and sleeping when the baby slept and um, she wouldn't let me go for a walk anywhere till he was about 10 <laughs> days old. So we're like, we were pretty much confined to the house. <laughs> so, you know, not doing much. And the first time we went out, we went out to our little local cafe, which was only, it was less than 10 minutes walk away, but it was up a hill and, I mum made me walk so slowly up the hill. Like, I think it took us like <laughs> half an hour because she would not let me walk at any pace at all. She wouldn't let me push the pram. <laughs> so <laughs> we did this half an hour stroll up the hill to the cafe, had a coffee, and then we were allowed to walk a little bit quicker going back down again. <laughs> so I think, yeah, yeah I, it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was, and because I, you know, I hadn't had a section or anything like that. So I think the worst part of it was probably the muscle pain from pushing for so yeah. long. Um, but also I think having mum there 
um, not letting me do anything and just really enforcing the rest really helped. Yeah. Just to recover and to feel, you know, strong quite quickly again. Um, yeah. the, like the emotional side was, that was harder with my uncle's funeral. And then also having to say goodbye to mum when they went back to New yeah. Zealand, that was really tough. And yeah, it, I was like, I, I was emotional about it for at least a week before they left. And then I think probably about a month after they left, like it was still something that I had to cope, had to deal with in my head. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I can understand that. And what was the sort of thought process around having another baby? Had you always wanted to have another one or what was that um, sort of journey like for you guys? I think when you go through a fertility journey, um, the grief of the whole, like of the process is something which you kind of catches you by surprise, all the little things that you grieve about. Um, like just the simple thing of not being able to just get pregnant and, yeah. you know, like, having these ideas about how you want to tell your partner that you're pregnant and oh I need to go and buy a pregnancy test and then telling friends and family and how exciting it would be and you know how many kids do we want to have and I like I always wanted a big family and my husband he only ever wanted two so um you know we'd always be negotiating on how many kids we'd mm -hmm. have and you know four children would become three and you'd grieve for that fourth child and then three would become two and you'd grieve for the third child. And then you get to the point where you're just really grateful that one day you might actually just be able to be parents, you know, like yeah. never mind thinking about how many children you might want to have. Um, so for a really long time, I didn't think I wanted another baby because I just didn't know if I could go through all of that again. Mm -hmm. um, and I, like, I knew that I wasn't, we weren't going to have the same journey that we had with Benji and it was four years to have him and it was a long process. Um, and, but we had five embryos in the freezer. So, um, as I felt confident that we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have that long journey, but it just, it was just, it was really hard. I found it really, really hard to get my head around. Um, and I ended up going to, um, to do some, um, counseling, um, just to, it didn't start off being about that, but in the end, that's what it came down to was talking about yeah. what I was scared about and why I thought I didn't want to have another baby when clearly I did. <laughs> um, so yeah, so when, so when Benji was, uh, three and a half months, we came back to New Zealand for a holiday. Um, and it was summertime here and all our family were around and, you know, the outdoor lifestyle, my mum lives on Waiheke, my in-laws live in Tauranga. It was just, you know, it was so nice here and all the support and family and everything. Um, so when we went back to the UK, we pretty quickly decided that we were going to move to New Zealand. Um, we just couldn't offer Benji the same lifestyle that we could in, in New Zealand that we could offer we couldn't offer him in London the same life we could live him live with him in New Zealand. So we decided um, to move back in January 2017. So Benji would have been, he was around 17 months, which is about around that age they start to realise that their family's not just mum and dad, but they've got grandparents and aunt and uncles and cousins and all that kind of thing. So it was a really nice time for him to come back for us to move back then um so I our embryos stayed in the UK and because I was yeah I just was in my head that I at that point that I 
we didn't want to have another baby. Um, in the end, we decided to bring the embryos out to New Zealand. So we had them shipped over at the end of that year. Um, and then it was a whole another year later that we finally, after I, I went to some counselling and stuff, and then we finally went and had a meeting with fertility associates and talked about having another baby. And um, they were really great. Um, they were really positive about the whole thing. And, you know, there's no reason I got pregnant the first try with IVF. So there's no reason why um, we should have any issues the second time. Um, and so we decided to go for it. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just like, just constantly in the back of my mind, am I ready? Am I ready? And it was just, I, we just had to do it. And so yeah. I was, um, I, I turned 40 last year, um, a few, couple of months after Charlotte was born and that was kind of my cutoff. So I was like, mm. if we're going to do this, we just have to do it now because, <laughs> um, you know, the longer you leave it, the older you are, the more risks for you and the baby and all that kind of thing. So I was like, right, if we're doing it, we have to do it now. Um, yeah, so we went in and, um, got ready to do a frozen transfer, which is quite different to, a to doing full IVF because um, your body is just being prepped to be pregnant. You're not thinking about trying to get as many eggs as possible for the embryos. So it's way less drugs, way less time, way less appointments. Like It's just a completely different experience. It, the whole thing just felt really surreal after what we'd been through the first time. It, like it, it was like, this doesn't make sense. Like surely we're not going to have a baby at the end of this. This is crazy. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so they, it was the same in terms of that. They take control of your cycle, um, and you have a period again, and then they put the embryo in. we, so everything was fine until when we went to have the transfer, they couldn't, um, put the catheter in, um, for some reason that they didn't really know why. Um, and it took them a few goes to get it to go to actually get the embryo in and it was quite painful um, but we got there in the end and we started the two-week wait which was a completely different experience with um, having a three-year-old and I was working part-time as well so it was mm-hmm. lots to distract you <laughs> yeah. Um, and I yeah I just I never felt really confident about the cycle like it just didn't feel right to me um, and we had I had went for the blood test on the day that I was told and I was totally expecting them to say you're not pregnant and um it came back positive and I was like um this is ridiculous <laughs> there's no way that I'm pregnant <laughs> um and then um we did another test a few days later and it was again the HCG levels were increasing and as far as they were concerned everything was fine um, and then a few days after that, I started having some bleeding. And so we did some more tests and it was still rising. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just really bizarre. And I just had this constant little bit of bleeding and constant tests saying that I was pregnant until I got to about seven and a half weeks. And we were a couple of days away from having the early scan that they do when you have IVF. Um, and I had a miscarriage and it, it was all, it was like, I, it was just like, I had like this initial like pain, like a really, really bad period pain. And then it just, everything came out and it was, it was really like kind of like an out of body experience. Like 
it wasn't really me. Like I was watching it happen to someone else. It it was such, it was, it was really, really weird. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And I just, I guess because I'd always had in my head that it wasn't working. It just, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't really know how I felt about it and I don't even know if I've really processed it or anything even now. Um, but it was, yeah, it just, it was a really felt like a weird time for me. Um, yeah. I had to go back to the clinic a week or so later to just to make sure that everything had come out. Um, and then it just got me back into that cycle of thinking, I don't want to have another baby. This is it. <laughs> you know, we've got Benji and he's amazing and we absolutely love him and life is great. And actually maybe we should just stop now. And I, like, I just, I started telling everyone, I don't want another baby. I'm done. Finished no more. <laughs> and then a few minutes, a few months later, they rang just to see how I was going, just a check-in. And, and I said, oh, like, I just don't know if I want to have another baby. And I've started talking about it with other people. And I just, like, I just don't know what to do. And so they said, well, why don't you come in and see us and we can have a look and chat about you know, trying something different and, and see from there. So I went in and I just started my period, which is the perfect time to go for an appointment. And we discussed trying a different um, process because they think that my body reacted to the drugs the last time rather than the embryo not working. So they tried some different drugs and way less drugs. So it was a much more of a natural process so they didn't take control of my cycle this time it was just my body doing what it needed to do and it, the drugs kind of more supporting it rather than yeah. taking over um and yeah so we went um in June we went for the transfer um and the transfer was perfect it just it was like when we had the transfer with Benji and we watched and the little puff of air came out of the catheter and everything worked absolutely perfectly um, and we also bought a house at the same time and it, coincidentally, we'd also bought a house with Benji at that exact same time when we'd gone for our transfer with him as well. So it kind of felt like all of these things were aligning that it was going to work out. Um, and within three or four days I knew I was pregnant. Um, it was like, my boobs were really sore and it just I was like, there's no way I am not pregnant right now. Um, and I went for the blood test and, they rang and said, oh, you're pregnant. And I was like, I know. <laughs> and I just, I, you know, like I just had no anxiety or anything about it at all. It was just yeah. like, yep, yeah, I'm pregnant. That's it. Let's just get on with it. Um, yeah. My sister and her family were living with us at the time because um, they'd just moved up to Auckland and they didn't even know that we'd gone and had IVF. So they were, you know, like actually getting to tell people and that it was a surprise was really fun too. <laughs> um, and then... When we were six weeks, um, my mum, we went and asked mum to be our midwife. She was going away because um, I wanted to wait until we had our first scan, which was a week later, but she was going on holiday. So I wanted to um, ask her to get us booked in with her because she's normally fully booked. And as it turned out, she was fully booked for February, but made room for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was just it was so nice. I mean, even if I didn't have my mum as a midwife, like it was really nice knowing that you go and you get your midwife and they're the person that's going to be with you through yeah. the whole process. You know, you're not going to have to meet other people or, you know, if you move houses, they're still going to be the same person and all that kind of thing. It was really nice 
knowing that after, yeah. you know, when we're in London and changing hospitals and changing people all the time. And yeah. And also because mum was my midwife, I didn't have to go for antenatal checks at the clinic or anything. I just had them all at home and mum would come yeah, around nice. for dinner and do the antenatal check at home. And it was really nice being able to share it with, as, with you know, whoever happened to be around. And um, Benji loved listening to the heartbeat mm -hmm. of the baby. So whenever mum was doing that, he would always come and sit with me on the bed and listen away. And he, like, he absolutely loved that. And... I had my sister and my sister-in-law were both pregnant at the same time as me and they had their babies before we did. So it was quite, I think it really helped with Benji to understand what was happening because he yeah. saw my sister-in-law and then saw my sister, that their tummies got big and then out came a baby and, you know, the same thing's happening to mum as well. So it made things much easier for him to understand mm -hmm. what was going on, which was really nice. Yeah. yeah. And I guess he was just that little bit older as well because he was, uh, and he was three and a half when Charlotte was born. So yeah, nearly three. Well, yeah, he was he was over three when we told him. So I didn't I didn't tell him until I think I was about four and a half months when I told him yeah. when we told him that we were having a baby. Yeah. Um, and we yeah we did um all of the standard testing and things, and we also paid for the NIPD test for the yes. one um the blood test that they do for the chromosomal abnormalities so we decided to pay for that um and that came back all fine um and we also we had extra i had a lot of extra scans in this pregnancy because again i had the cervix length ones um and then also because of the placenta deterioration with benji i had from 32 weeks I had scans every two weeks and then from 36 weeks I had a scan every week so I had a lot of scans <laughs> with, with this pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. And how were you sort of feeling was it much different to your first in terms of other pregnancy symptoms? I so I had the same nausea without being actually sick yeah. um, just all day feeling like I needed to be sick but out and not actually throwing up. I didn't have the same headaches and um that I and lightheadedness and stuff that I had with Benji early on um, but it was the same it's like exactly at six weeks it started um and it this it stopped earlier so I was sick and up until about 18 weeks um but I at that point like when you know you're heading into the second trimester and you should start to be feeling better I started to feel worse because I had really low iron um, and hemoglobin and I like it literally felt like I was walking around in a cloud and like my that my head was in a cloud and I just felt really spacey all the time um, and it I wasn't until I was um, I went I think there was around six months they when you just have the standard blood tests and I did those and it came back saying that I had really low iron and hemoglobin and so I went and had an iron infusion at seven months and it was amazing like it was just like I feel like I wasted my whole sec second trimester when I could have felt really good yeah. <laughs> because I didn't get it done sooner because within days I just felt so much better and the cloud lifted and I just felt so much clearer and you know like it just made such a big difference to how I felt and then the other thing I found um and both of my babies were born in the middle of summer but obviously one in the UK and one in New Zealand and I found the summer here was so much harder like I 
my feet swelled up, which didn't happen with Benji. I had, like, I was just so hot all the time. I, like, I'd sit at home with the air conditioning on me, which I never needed to do when I was pregnant with Benji. Um, I couldn't sleep. I, you know, like, I just got to that point of, I actually felt I don't want to be pregnant anymore. Let's have a baby. Let's just get it, get the baby out. (laughs) And I never, I never got to that point with Benji, but I definitely felt that here. It was, yeah, yeah, it was just, it was so hot and yeah. so unpleasant. <laughs> and what were your thoughts around um, where you'd give birth? Were you planning on going to a hospital or a birth center or having the baby at home? Yeah, um, because of um, being IVF and my age and, you know, like the, the other risk factors and stuff, I think I had about four or five different things that made me high risk I didn't really have a choice and and mum wouldn't have allowed me to have a baby anywhere else other than the hospital (laughs) because she I mean she felt confident that I was going to have a normal birth um but just if anything happened yeah sure so yeah it it wasn't really something that we thought about um I mean on reflection I could have had a home birth and I think it would have been really nice but actually I had a really nice hospital birth and So I don't, I don't wish that I'd done anything different. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And did your labor end up starting spontaneously? Do you want to take us through that now? Yeah. So, um, I, so I was working as a property manager for, sh- um, short term rentals. So we rented properties out on Airbnb and things like that. Um, and I had one of my big properties that I looked after was due to be handed back on the 12th of February. And I was due on the 22nd of February. So I, th- I thought this baby's going to come um, around the due dates, you know, same time as what Benji did. So if I, I could finish work on the 12th of February and still have 10 days of maternity leave, and that would be totally fine. So that's what I did. Um, so I finished work on the 12th. And then the next morning I woke up and I had that same funny feeling that I had when I in the morning when I woke up when I had Benji. And... I was like, oh, this can't be, I can't be having a baby today. I'm nine days early. Don't be silly. I'm not having a baby. (laughs) So I didn't even say anything to Shane. He went off to work just like normal. Um, I dropped Benji off at daycare and I went for a 5K walk like I'd normally do on a day after dropping him at daycare. And I just started getting these occasional pains that I was just ignoring and was like oh you know maybe this is Braxton Hicks because I've never had those before so you know maybe this is what that is (laughs) and just got on with my day and I had some errands to do and I my sister um didn't have a car at the time so I went and picked her up and took her for a couple of errands that she needed to do and I yeah I just had this just constant contractions all day, which I just basically ignored. Mm-hmm. And you think when you're having your second baby that you would know better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went to pick up Benji and his cousin. They went to the same daycare, so I went to pick them up at 3 o'clock. And that was the point as I was walking into daycare, I suddenly had this really big contraction and, and I was like, okay, I, something's happening this is not Braxton Hicks maybe I am going to have a baby sometime soon (laughs) and so I went we went back to my sister's house and dropped the kids off and my mum was there um, and I just kind of casually said to her I've been having some contractions you know 
I think we might have a baby soon. And she's like, oh, yeah, you know, no worries. If nothing happens, we'll just, you know, in the morning we can go into the hospital and break your break your waters and get on with it. Um, and my sister had her in-laws were staying and just there were way too many people in the house. And so I, I said I needed to go home to do a few things at home and I left Benji with them at their house and I went to the supermarket and had quite a lot of contractions in the supermarket and walked very slowly around the supermarket um, and then I got home and I um, Shane had just coincidentally sent me a text message saying that um, they were thinking about going to the pub after work. So I messaged him back and said, oh, how about we have a baby instead? <laughs> so he uh, rang me straight away and was like, what? What's going on? Um, and he worked in town and I was going to deliver at Auckland Hospital. So um, I just said, look, just stay there. And then, you know, when something's happening, we'll call you and you can just come straight to the hospital from work. Um, and so, yeah, so I went back home and started thinking about packing my hospital bag and then mum turned up and she said that when I left the house that she thought that I might be a little bit more than just having a few contractions. So she thought she'd better come and check on me. Um, and so she did a quick internal and I was already five centimetres. Oh, so wow. she said, let's go to the hospital now. <laughs> so we jumped into the car and uh, it was five o'clock on a Wednesday and we we're really lucky. The traffic was quite light considering that it was five o'clock on a Wednesday um, and we got there about 5.30 but it was awful being in the car like yeah. just every contraction like I just was like lifting myself up and trying to get control on something to like I just remember that pain and then when you drive into the hospital there's these really evil jada bars if anyone who knows Auckland Hospital the judder bars are just they need to get rid of them <laughs> they're so bad like as you're going over a judder bar having a contraction it's just it's not great <laughs> um so yeah so we were we got to the hospital and we were in our room um by about five thirty. one of Shane's colleagues dropped him off so he was he got there shortly after we did I, I I'd said to mum that I might want to have a water birth, but I didn't even think about anything like that. I was just um, really concentrating on trying to get through the contractions. I just they just felt so much stronger than what they had with Benji, and I've got no idea. You know, like at the time, I was like, did I just not remember what happened correctly? Like this is just crazy. Um, and it turned out that the baby was posterior, so it was the facing the, the wrong like heading head down but facing the wrong way on your pressing on your spine so that's why it was so much more painful um and yeah I think the whole time I was just like I'm not doing this again this is it two babies we are done <laughs> no more yeah. um and yeah um mum was she, she she was a bit um anxious about the baby's heartbeat and so she decided to put a little tracer on again because the monitoring thing kept falling off um and i at that point i'd i'd still not had any show my waters hadn't broken nothing like that so when she went to put the tracer um the tracer on my waters broke um and then she said to me do you feel like pushing and <laughs> i was like oh maybe i do and she's like well you're you're 10 centimeters now so if you want to if you feel like pushing then go for it and I actually felt like I needed to push and it was completely different to Benji um like I, I had 
I had an urge to push and I just felt so much more confident and like I can do this and I just I'm gonna listen to my body and get the baby out and less than half an hour later she was born um yeah I'll never forget the look on my mum's face when she saw she lifted Charlotte up and was like you have a girl and just like the look on her face like she was just so surprised because I we have a lot of boys in our family um my on one side of the family we only have nephews and then on the other side of the family there's a whole lot more nephews and just one niece so yeah we were all totally shocked I totally expected to be having another boy I was not expecting a girl as well um and so yeah so mum just delivered her straight on to me um and she just cried and cried and cried and cried (laughs) and then so we um so helped her and she just went straight on to my breast and just started feeding straight away. Um, completely different to Benji. And she was there for over an hour, maybe an hour and a half, just happy, just feeding away. Um, and it was just so nice. We just, I just lay on the bed with her and um, the placenta was delivered and I needed to have a couple, of, just a couple of stitches. Um, and yeah, we ended up being her just with me on the bed for over two hours um, and then mum thought she'd better take her and weigh her and measure her and things. Um, and so she did all of that. And then um, Shane had some skin to skin with her while we called our family. And then I hopped up and had a shower and then got dressed and then we all went home. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just the most bizarre thing ever. Like less than six hours later, we we're in the car driving back the other way, except for this time we had a baby. <laughs> so I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and, and I just, I and I felt so much better after having Charlotte. Um, like, I, yeah, I just felt amazing. Um, yeah. Completely different. Um, no, yeah, I had no muscle um, pain or anything like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, the whole thing was just so much, of a nicer experience because there was just Shane and I and mum and um, another midwife did come in towards the end um, just because of mum being my midwife, I guess that they want, you know, just in case anything happened yeah. um, that there was someone else that was there that could take control and deal with anything that needed to happen. Um, but she just stayed in the background and we, I mean, I didn't even really know that she was there. She did, she came and introduced herself and then she was just in the background, just, doing paperwork or whatever she needed to do um so that was it was yeah it was just really nice um so yeah we went home mum was staying with us um so we could have gone to birth care but I just really wanted to be at home with Benji I wanted him you know I wanted us to be a family together and I didn't feel like I needed to go to birth care or anything um so my he stayed the night at my sister's um and she just she they hadn't said anything to him about the baby arriving. She just dropped him off at daycare in the morning, and Shane had gone and picked him up, and then said to him, "Oh, we've got a surprise for you at home." And he came home, and Charlotte was just asleep on the couch, and he was really cautious with her at first. It was just so sweet. He just like came over and just sat on my lap and was just looking at her, and then. He went up to her and touched her hand and was like, oh, my sister. It was really yeah. sweet. <laughs> um, but, he, yeah, I mean, he very quickly grew quite confident with her and um, he would love 
like we'd get the breastfeeding pillow and put it on his lap because he's and he's <laughs> he's quite a small, a skinny little three and a half year old. So he needed something to make him have a bigger lap. So the breastfeeding pillow was perfect. So he would lie there on his lap and then lay Charlotte onto him, and he just absolutely loved sitting there with her on the pillow. Um, not sure how keen she was about the whole thing, but she tolerated <laughs> yeah. him. <laughs> um, yeah, so we stayed. Um, so mum stayed with us for the first week, and then she lives on Waiheke. So with the second week, we went off to um, Waiheke for a week, which was really nice, and mum and Jeff looked after us. And, yeah, so mum just did all the postnatal checks and everything, and Charlotte was totally fine, Um she took to breastfeeding so much easier than Benji. Um, I still did have some of the pain that I had the first time. Um, yeah. So mum just thinks that it was probably just some like physic, you know, something with my nipples or something. Cause mm -hmm. I both times ended up with cracked nipples, but um, that was easily fixed with um, nipple cream. So it was fine. Um, yeah. But yeah, once she was away, we were away, it was totally fine. And, um, she's oh she's fourteen months today and she is still breastfeeding like a champ. <laughs> yeah. she, I think she feeds four or five times a day still. Um, she absolutely loves it. So yeah, <laughs> it's hard to imagine <laughs> wanting to not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then yeah, so my physically, um, my recovery is doing really well. Um, until I got it into my head that um, on Waiheke, every second summer they have an art trail where they have all of its um, these sculptures on the golf and it's all these amazing artists come and build these sculptures and stuff and there's this big walk that you do. But it's up lots of hills and stairs and it's quite steep. And so I got it into my head that I really wanted to do the walk in the summer and it finished when just before I would have been, Charlotte would have been six weeks old. And so from about two weeks, I started walking a lot, trying to build my fitness up and trying to get to the point so that I could do this walk. Um, and around four weeks, I just started to feel really achy and we had stairs in the house we were living in at the time and it was a struggle to walk up the stairs and I was just just in this constant achy pain and I went for a walk with my sister-in-law one day and we went down onto the beach and I was pushing the pram across the sand and it, I was just in so much pain that I could hardly walk um so the next day I went to the physio and it turned out that I had um, strained all of the ligaments that hold your pelvis together mm. um, from basically from trying to do too much before I was ready. Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, it, um, it took about four months of physio and then another four months of working with a personal trainer um, to get everything strengthened back up and get back to regular exercise again. So yeah. I would, yeah, I'd highly recommend to anybody that you just <laughs> take the, you know, those first few weeks, just take them to just relax and yeah, don't do what I did. <laughs> um, yeah. The other thing um, in regards to a personal trainer is when I got pregnant with Charlotte, I felt like I was a lot less fit and strong than when I was pregnant with Benji. And so from about three months, I started to get a sore back. So I went to a personal trainer who specialized in helping in women's health. And so she yeah. was amazing. Um, and I saw her once a week from when I was three months until I was eight months. 
Um, and she, yeah, made such a difference to how I felt um, while I was pregnant physically. And she, yeah. I saw her again. She's the one that I saw afterwards as well. And yeah, I'm now back to being able to do all the stuff that I could do before, which was really nice. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, I guess if anyone, I mean, I've talked a lot about IVF and the emotional side of it and stuff. And if anyone's, you know, at that point where that's the route they're going to have to take or they're going through it or, and they want someone to talk to and they don't know anyone who's been down that road before, then please do feel free to get in touch. I'm really happy to talk to people about it. Um, when I lived in London, I um, worked with a few people who were going through IVF um, just to, you know, be an extra pair of ears when they needed it. Yeah. Um, so I'm really happy to help people you know, just to be someone to talk to if people need it. Yeah, um, amazing. And Thank yeah, you. it's it's all it's all worth it. <laughs> like you know, it's we've been through a lot to get to where we are, but it's totally worth it. Yeah, yeah, no, amazing. Thank you, Gina. I've really loved listening to your story, and I think um, a lot of other people out there will really love it too. So, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us all. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I mean, I really hope that it's value. You know, even if one person listens and finds that it's helps them then it's totally worth doing so thank you very much for having me thanks so much for listening to this episode of the kiwi birth tales podcast i really hope you enjoyed it i'd love to hear your feedback so either leave a review on the podcast app that you're listening on or head to our instagram at kiwi birth tales and leave a comment there if you're interested in sharing your birth tale then please head to the instagram page and use the email link to get in touch thanks again for listening i really look forward to sharing the next episode with you Thanks again to Alibit for coming on board and sponsoring this episode, meaning that I can bring you more content. I would love for you to go and show them some support. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.